The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. All right. So today we're focusing on the momentum and all the innovation happening in the collectible space. So I think whether you're a collector or not, it uh, feels like the collectibles market's on fire these days, sort of from, from digital sneakers and physical sneakers to trading cards and new marketplaces, fresh ownership models. Um, and, and the industry is really getting attention, I think, from pure collectors as well as investors these days. So in the room with us, we have uh, Scott, who's CEO and co-founder of Starstock. Uh, building a stock market for sports cards. We have Grant, CEO and co-founder of Whatnot, a live streaming shopping marketplace focused on collectibles. We have Benoit, co-founder at Artifact, which today is building kind of the digital supreme, if you will, starting with digital sneaker NFTs. Um, DJ, who's uh, vice president over at Panini, um, really has been kind of in the industry from the 1950s, I think, producing trading cards, collectibles, <laughs> stickers, um, you name it in the collectible space, as well as um, some folks from A16Z. So we have Anne and John and Andrew and Jeff, all from our consumer investing team. So without further ado, we'll take it away. Um, I want to kind of set the scene first, probably getting with um, Jeff and DJ. I would actually love your perspective on this. So just thinking about sort of the state of the collectibles industry, especially based on how you've seen it evolve, um, where would you say we're at today in the collectibles industry? Well, uh, this is DJ from Panini. Certainly from the trading card side of it, um, particularly sports trading cards, this is the pinnacle. We've, we've never seen it um, as strong as it is now. I've been in the industry myself for 30 years, and uh, I've worked at, uh, at FLIR, I've worked at Press Pass, um, and now Panini. I, well, I've never seen it like this, so this is, this is clearly the apex, certainly in the new era of trading cards. Awesome. Would you say, question for you on that sort of, you know, what do you mean by that? Like interest or volume or just new people coming into the space? I'd say all of those things. I mean, and it and it started, it, you know, started a couple of years ago with interest. We started to see a lot more interest. We started to see younger collectors. We started to see different types of collectors as we as we morphed into the digital space, as case breakers came into the marketplace, and you could just see that the the generational change, if you will, in the industry, and then the pandemic hit, and everything just went. Uh, kind of berserk from there because then investment dollars started to come in. So now it's all those things. It's interest, it's um, number of brands, and certainly sales dollars. So to answer your question, you're spot on. It's all those things. Yeah. And Jeff, if you're able to chime in too, would love it from your perspective and you know from, from eBay as an operator, but also from an investor perspective, how are you thinking about the space? You, you, you know, it's funny because I, I had this monster uh, card collection for when I was a sports nut when I was growing up, and my mother managed to throw most of it away. So that probably, uh, <laughs> you know, gave me a second career in venture and kept me uh, working and motivated. Um, no, but it was funny. Um, it, it, there is a clear resurgence going on. The amount of activity uh, we're seeing uh, inbound in companies doing really interesting things is really high. And for me, it's 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 a fast throwback is when I got to eBay in 1999, which is what, 22 years ago, um, eBay largely was built to, to, to uh, trade collectibles, um, all kinds of collectibles, be they Beanie Babies or trading cards or, or you know, uh, collectible sneakers and things like that. The original business plan that uh, Jeff Skoll wrote was almost entirely addressed at the collectible business, which at the time, he I think he sized at like $100 billion. Um, and so eBay was a fantastic early place to trade collectibles, but it was far from a perfect place to trade collectibles. And where they really fell down, in my point of view, was in um, uh, authentication. You know, just we we did not have the infrastructure at the time to be able to do a good job to to to, to guarantee that what was being sold as a collectible was indeed that collectible of that type of that quality of you know uh, that manufacturer. And so it's been fascinating to watch the market develop and get much more sophisticated and much more uh, 
targeted into uh, different uh, areas of specialty. And, you know, the, the folks on this uh, call represent, you know, a pretty broad selection of different approaches to the same market. Jeff, I'm, I'm curious if I can actually sort of ask a follow-up question to that, just and, and, and DJ as well for, for you from your Panini mm-hmm. experience. Um, it, it feels like a lot of what we're seeing in, um, in, in trends these days has been a movement of collectibles from from people collecting them for for, for sentiment, right? Like you, you collect the baseball card of someone, a favorite athlete, and therefore um, you know there's there's sentimental value attached to that. Um, it feels like collecting has moved beyond sentiment to now becoming also a store of value for, for investing purposes as well, right? And I think you know we're seeing a lot of that happen of some of the the asset prices that have surged over the last year and a half. It's it's become an investment activity that that's, that's speculative in, in some sense. Um, so, so so curious if this was happening sort of even in the early days of you know of eBay and sort of you know in, in the 90s, were, were people collecting them? Was it more collection versus investment, or has, is this a fairly? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It was. It was both. It was probably primary uh, collections, uh, but there were people who were very into it for money. Um, you know, that said, uh, you know, the people who were in it for investment, you know, would have to keep their own spreadsheet on the side. We didn't, you know, build the tools to to real time value your portfolio. And, uh, you know, and, and obvious add-ons that would support the investment use case. My sense is these days uh, there's a lot of energy around the investment. And, you know, some of it is the what we, we affectionately call weird finance. You know, <clears throat> the fact that you can, you know, <laughs> buy fragments of all kinds of different assets. That class would be their, you know, master paintings or cars or you know, wh- you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is, and then uh, you know th- that has trickled into the uh, the collectible trading card space as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's there's clearly an investment aspect that has that has always been prevalent in in the industry, but it certainly has uh, expanded quite a bit nowadays. I mean, the core has always been people's passion for sports or an athlete or a team. Um, but you've always had uh, people that also have uh, been in the industry to make money because if you're, if you're uh, educated enough in, in the industry and it's tricky, my brand team goes through this quite a bit. In other words, trying to determine what an autograph or a game worn Jersey combination will, will trade for in the secondary market. You know, we don't, intentionally build products for uh, secondary market value or what we think they should sell for that sort of thing uh, market conditions sort of dictate that but you do have to be aware of the fact that um, you know people are paying a price for a product and they're expecting some sort of return um, the entertainment value of breaking product I think has lost a little bit of its luster in this market it used to be that you'd open cards a lot of times for entertainment, right? Looking for your favorite player, teams or, or cards to trade with friends uh, that you knew uh, liked a certain player or team. And that's not probably as prevalent right now as trying to find the card that is going to pay for the case or the box, if you will. So I think a lot of... A funny little vignette on cards. Um, when I was at eBay, there's a we sold a Honus Wagner card. I think it was T two hundred six is the code, yep, and I the think one. it sold. I think it sold for like fifty k, and we were out of our minds at a baseball card. We <laughs> sold fifty k. That same card uh, recently uh, sold five years ago for three point one two million dollars, and I think it continues to go up from there. So, uh, you know, it, this has become real. Yep. I think a lot of people start off or, you know, uh, come back into the hobby uh, for investment purposes and then turn into collectors. And and that's kind of my story in this is I was a really big fantasy football player and sports better. And so I saw cards as a way to to watch sports and and make money. And over time, while Mm -hmm. I was, you know, flipping cards, investing in cards, I grew, you know, a passion and a love for it and turned into a collector as well. And I think we, you know, we see a lot of that on our, on our site, on Starstock, where people will come in and they'll be really active traders. And then we'll see them start to build out collections and start to try to find gaps for specific players or specific teams. Um, and, but I think a really popular kind of segue into sports cards right now, especially for people that, you know, were sports bettors or into crypto or like flipping sneakers and things like that is, 
they see a, it more as a game at first, and then they turn into collectors later. I think this is also a good time um, for a Grant at Whatnot to um, jump in with the Whatnot story. Grant, how did uh, how did you start collecting and um, you decide to build Whatnot? And uh, maybe you can share uh, how Whatnot's enabling um, you know sellers to really make a living. Uh, off of collecting and trading? Yeah, uh, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, I guess going back to the early days of whatnot, uh, me and my co-founder, Logan, we were both pretty big collectors and also buyers and, and resellers. Actually, the story's probably not too dissimilar from, from Scott, where, you know, we started off probably a little bit more on the investment side and then slowly got into it. and. We were using sites like, you know, eBay quite a bit, as that is the, still probably like the king of where you buy and resell. And we were just a little bit frustrated with the experience we had there. And we felt there was a way to kind of bring the experience uh, into, you know, our generation and, and build some things that had just been lacking, particularly on the, like the social side of commerce. And, you know, so much of of collectibles, I think, as, as DJ pointed out, uh, is about the fun and the community and bringing people together over it. And, and that was one of the inspirations for whatnot. And the main thing we, we look at is our, our live stream uh, shopping platform. And so we've given uh, any seller or any collector, really, uh, the ability to start their own live stream and, and turn into their own Sotheby's-like live auctioneer or QVC style host to be able to talk about or sell any of their products. And you, you can kind of, one way you kind of think about it is kind of like anyone can create their own card show table. And so you get a lot of people interacting, talking with each other, having fun. And then, you know, as a function of that, you have people who make amazingly good businesses off the back of it. You know, we have lots of people who have started off as collectors and have now, um, Turned, turned kind of their presence and whatnot into full-time businesses. Um, many people now making, doing millions of dollars a year worth of sales. Um, one of our sellers, his name's Roger, he just comes up you know, on the back of my, my head. You know, he was a hobbyist, started selling some sports cards and some Pokemon cards on whatnot on the side and then um, began selling so many that he, you know, quit, focused on his full-time job and actually just opened up a uh, card shop in Miami off the back of... Uh, his business on whatnot. I think this is interesting too, because it's sort of, um, it, it runs a little bit counter to DJ's idea that maybe some of the entertainment value of like unboxing has gone away. And there's probably truth to that. But at the same time, when I think about what you're building grant and also Scott and Ben Woff, all for kind of different, um, slightly different takes on it, but like you're totally bringing that back for a global community digitally. Benoit, you guys are doing it like for the metaverse, um, for the digital community. So would love to hear how you're thinking about that. Maybe Benoit, let's start with you. We'll go the most extreme. On the, uh, on, on, on the general, like why people are collecting and why is it so hot right now? Like, uh, like that's the general overview. Yeah, that question. And then also I would say, you know, how you think about the, the excitement that you get um, um, from let's say the digital sneaker, how are you guys bringing that to life? How do you think about that, uh, fostering that community and that like emotional feeling so, that comes with getting something? No, I mean, so I mean, like first the emotion for us, it comes from uh, first from the design, you know, uh, because we are a very, very, very visual brand, uh, and we're very content focused. So, and you know, these days it's it's very hard like to keep someone's attention on, on social media. So we have some kind of a secret formula to get people to stay on the video and watch it again. We even have like some techniques like to make sure they watch it again, you know, like uh, with like how we edit uh, exactly how many seconds we make. It's a bit strange, but uh, we really think about this stuff like deeply. And so that's, that's the first thing. I think anything related to collectibles, even, you know, that goes back to a lot of our childhood, like how the packaging looks, what sound does it make when you open it, you know, how, how does it loop? Because these days, you know, a lot of the digital assets are looping videos, so does it loop perfectly or not? So it's a lot of attention to detail that might seem sometimes like a bit, uh, you know, normal and you don't think about it, but uh, it, it takes a lot of craftsmanship actually to, to do that. And so that's why us as well is interesting because we mix some kind of a luxury aspect with the pricing we have first. 
I mean, that's mostly defined by the market, not by us to start with, but now it's kind of like at that price. And also with the craftsmanship element, we bring to the making of the assets and the designs and the sneakers and the overall experience you, you build around, you know, for your collectors. And I think it's something you need to think of very much uh, first and for foremost is it's not uh, consumers, right? It's collectors. Uh, and so it's a very, very different way of treating them, of thinking of the experience and also not of the experience, you know, of purchase, but uh, post-purchase. What can they do with it? Can they connect with other people and trade them? Can they level them up to make them, you know, become more valuable? Uh, can they keep them for a long time and then resell them? Like, are, are they flippers? Are they not flippers? Are they collectors that have, you know, influence within the general community operating in? So we always need to think of them as different communities with different passion points, uh, behaviors, and attitudes toward collecting. Uh, and that's what makes it, you know, super interesting because it's 10,000 times more interesting and uh, personally enriching as well. Uh, not on the money side, on the cultural side, to be interacting and thinking with that type of audience and, and persons that are into collectibles. And it's also forcing you to really think deeply about your product experience and always go over, over the top and over deliver for your collectors because it's one dumb thing I did the other day and that's uh, maybe I'm digressing, but you know, we did the Jeff Staples uh, drop the other day. Jeff Staples is iconic sneaker OG designer that did the Dunk Pigeon in 2005. And it was very successful. We sold out like, and then after we had a one-of-one -one auctions and a collector bought it for $90,000. $90, and then everyone on Twitter was uh, celebrating the collector, saying, congrats, <laughs> you got this. It's so cool, <laughs> so cool. Man, I was like, yeah, we're going to put you in high beast with the article on Discord with him. Jeff, Jeff said, like, man, it's the... First time in a long time, I talked to one of my uh, consu consumers. Uh, and also, he's going to invite him to Nobu in Tokyo. Let's go. And as well, I was, then I was saying to my co-founders, Chris and Z, I was like, it's so cool because, you know, when a very rich VIP person goes at LV and buys, or at Hermes and buy a Birkin bag, no one is outside the shop saying, congrats, you got the best bag. Like, it fits you so well. Like, no one is doing this, right? <laughs> but collectors, and in, in that space of collectors, because they also develop their own persona, their own following, it's a constant celebration. And, you know, if you have something that's bad, you're like, oh, too bad, me too. You know, people feel together because they didn't get the thing they wanted. If they win, if they fight in an auction, people remember and the collectors res respect each other because they were in the same auction fight. It's just so, 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 you know, in, interesting and, and dynamic and opening so much more possibilities as a brand and from the product side to do dope products and also, of course, monetize. But uh, it's, it's really super exciting and us every day we're just loving it. And, and it's, yeah, it's very, very cool. Before we kick that back to Scott and Grant, because I love that, like the idea that they're consumers, not collectors. I want to get DJ's perspective no, the opposite. on that. The opposite. The other way. Sorry, God, sorry. <laughs> not consumers, collectors. DJ, what's your point of view on that? Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's very similar. I mean, what I would always say about the, the you know, collectibles and stuff is, is it's born out of passion. Right. And, and it's funny. I have conversations with people quite a bit because some people say I, I don't collect anything. And I, I say, everybody collects something. You just, maybe you're not totally aware sometimes of, of what it is that you collect, but, uh, you know, co collecting things, uh, tie you to certain times in your life and memories and, and those kind of things. So it's very nostalgic. So no matter what's swirling around in the marketplace, like right now, it's very, monetarily driven it's very competitive it's as competitive now as i've ever seen it and by that i mean it's competitive trying to acquire product i mean that's kind of what benoit was talking about i mean people there is a bit of competition because there's only so much supply and the demand right now far exceeds the supply so there's a lot of of competition quite frankly for allocations or even as a consumer to find the product buy it. Um, price has really not become an issue right now. It's more about access. So um, I definitely see a, a lot of, you know, uh, uh, our our industry mirrors a lot of the products that we make in terms of the fact that we're making uh, products built around athletic sports. And uh, I see that a lot with consumers, but I, I do appreciate the passion. I really like watching when somebody is trying to complete 
one of our very short sets. In other words, if we've numbered something to less than 10, uh, it could be a gold parallel or a zebra parallel or, or something like that. And there's actually people that are still, and the internet helps because they can source all around the world to try to find the other cards. It's incredible when somebody completes a very short printed set like that and then has it on display for everybody to see. I still like seeing those accomplishments. I, I love the... Um... I love the nod that you gave there on, on completion as being, I think, a, a key part of the, the sentimental value here as well. And I, I come from the games world where um, it's all about completing, you know, sets of weapons or armor or, or virtual goods, et cetera. And, you know, having numbered sets, I think, is definitely one way to do it. So I think that, that's a great point in, in terms of, like, why people collect. Um, I, I wanted to also um, go back to something that, I, that Ben Ryan and Scott were talking about earlier which I think is a fascinating trend that we've been seeing recently in collectibles, which is this notion of physical assets uh, being converted into digital. Right? <laughs> like the idea that, um, you know, for, 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 the, for the longest time, like we've had, you know, physical sneakers and, and now we have digital sneakers that, you know, our, that Ben Ryan, the Artifact team is making and at Starstack, you guys are, are taking actual physical cards and, you know, scanning and authenticating and grading them and then uploading a digital asset into a stock market of sorts. Um, would, would love to hear from um, from from either of you, and, and, and maybe Scott. Um, we'll, we'll have you go first. Um, and, and what do you think? This is a trend that, that's here to stay. Sort of, what does this look like long term? You know, do you see a future where like everything is digital, and and we just like gold and commodities? We have some, we have physical cards that are like in a warehouse somewhere that's that's more of a store of value. Um, but what what do you think? This our heads eventually. This trend of physical to digital. Yeah, no, it, it, it's super interesting. Obviously, something that I'm very interested in. Um, but you have physical, you know, you have physical cards, you have digital cards as well, which are, you know, NFTs are taking off now. And um, what we're doing in Starstock is kind of taking physical cards and giving them more utility so they can, you know, be they can be a physical card if you want. They could also kind of be digital as well. Um, you know, what I noticed, I grew up a really big collector what, and kind of put put it down for, uh, you know, a few years or so, what I noticed when I got back into cards was there's a lot of friction that comes with trading these physical assets. Um, biggest thing for me was, you know, needing to ship them back and forth um, and waiting, you know, a week or two to actually get ownership or, or get possession of the card. So by by taking a physical asset and, you know, storing it in a central location and turning it digital, you kind of you get the best, best of both worlds. You get a real physical asset that's had store of value for over a hundred years. Um, you know, Panini's been making cards since the fifties, Topps has been making them since I think the late 1800s. Um, but you also get the benefits of digital. You're able to trade them at scale. You're able to get instant transactions, lower fees, more trust. Um, and so I think that's going to be a trend that we're going to see for the next couple of decades. Um, you know, just taking, taking physical assets, even beyond sports cards and turning them digital. Um, and at Starstock, at any point, all of our cards are in a central vault. At any point, if you want them shipped out, we'll ship it to you. So if you want to uh, gift that card to someone or you want to hang it up in your office, you can do that. So, you know, I I, I think, uh, you know, I'm very bullish on, on kind of that trend of uh, merging those two worlds together for sure. Yeah, and me, I can continue uh, if you want, John. But um, Go ahead. Um, completely, uh, Scott, completely agree with, with what Scott is saying. For us, it was the same, you know, like we started with sneakers because... It was already like an asset people were trading, but it's so cumbersome to ship the physical, verify the, the, you know, the authenticity, ship it back, not get scammed. Uh, you have the custom. So at scale, you know, it doesn't work. And we think also it's a thing of the past because the moment you start and we know that, you know, us, because we were geeks, but also all the next generation coming up, they all grew up playing games. It's just so natural for them to value what they have in games more than what they have in their um, IRL life. So we think the future is definitely going that way. Uh, and even, you know, to go, the thing that's been fascinating to me, because I knew about game skins and all of that, and we, we knew we wanted to do sneakers and, you know, virtual fashion uh, first for games and also have the physical element for still, you know, to differentiate and also because there's still a story of craftsmanship there. And we think, we, you know, going to a made-to-order model, it makes sense. And it's still cool, you know, still in this decade to have physical um, clothes, maybe less and less in the future. And we always say that in sci-fi movies, Chris is always saying this, that the aliens all wear, all, wear the, all wear the same suit. 
you know, so there's a reason, you know, if all the aliens at some point they will dress the same, it means that what you wear, you know, physically doesn't really matter. Like if I augmented rate glasses, you can make that look anything you want. But the interesting thing is the, um, the fact that with, with the sneakers you can and clothes, you can wear them in, you know, in games or right now it's in metaverse games, all these blockchain-based games. And what's amazing is really the real estate play there is actually. It's not only the items and the clothes, it's the real estate. And I even think that in the future, it's going to be even more important what you own in terms of lands and how as well you can make actual business and, and monetize it as a real, real estate magnate on the metaverse than on the real world. Because at some point in the real world, there won't be any more space. Uh, or it's going to be very complex to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and me, what has been fascinating, because I was not knowledgeable too much about the real estate blockchain side of things on the different metaverse being built, and it's crazy, you know, you see collectors buying, I don't know, in, in kilometers, but huge, 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 huge part of land. And you, when you look at the map of Sandbox or Decentraland, you see their logos, right? They're like mm -hmm. countries almost. Uh, and they organize exhibitions. They, they think of, you know, hiring game designers to do stuff in. And mm -hmm. it's just like the real estate plays, like a lot of things are happening there. And money-wise, it's, it's crazy as well. And it's exactly replicating... The, 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 the rules of the physical world. Like you, have, you have kind of like agents, you have people who buy big parcels and divide them to resell them more expensive. And this is growing super fast. So it's even on that level of need for physicality, the real estate side is super, super interesting to, to dig into. That's, that's super fascinating. I find, um, but I also find that collectibles and, and the blockchain are, are, have a natural synergy there in the sense that you care a lot about authenticity of your collectibles, right? Like you want to make sure that you have like, you know, the legit card or sneakers, especially if it's a limited run item. And then you can ensure that by, you know, minting, uh, you know, just a, a discrete number of sneakers or cards, for example, on the blockchain. And so it, it does feel like it, there's a natural fit there between NFTs and collectibles. Um, Grant, um, I, I remember you were saying earlier uh, that this might have been before the show, actually, um, that, that you guys were also experimenting with um, uh, NFTs as well as, as part of as part of whatnot. Um, lo love to hear a bit more about, you know, if, if anything you can share there since it's yeah. very uh, appropriate of for course. the combo. Yeah, um, you know, I think when we think about who we're building for for whatnot, it's it is for collectors, and so that's where the the company is is super focused on. And so as you start to see uh, collectibles move digital with things like NFTs, um, it's very clear that if you're going to uh, service the collector, you have to start to think about digital. Uh, because there's, you know, there's a heck of a lot of advantages to digital. As you were pointing out before, like you don't have to worry about authenticity. You don't have to worry about shipping. You don't have to worry about where you store it as much. Um, and there's not a whole lot of disadvantages. The, the singular disadvantage is you can't touch it in your hand. Grant, did it easy? Yeah, I think we lost Grant. Got it. <laughs> okay. Pivot. I, I do have a question here that um, I actually think, Scott, maybe you can help us out with this. Is It seems to me, and what, what Grant was kind of chatting about, right, is that it's really hard still to use tech to help authenticate. Um, so I'd love to hear kind of like your thinking on that. Um, you know, is the tech available? What are kind of the challenges of it? And then more generally, are there things that you think the technology industry, you know, at, as a whole, what are the big problems that you think tech can still help solve um, and that you guys are working to solve in the collectible space? Yeah, well, in sports cards, there's, you know, there's authenticating and then there's, there's also grading as well. Um, the grading, you know, a, a big, big conversation in the space is um, around, you know, grading of cards and, you know, can can we replace human graders with technology? Um, and it's something that that's kind of a hot topic that, you know, a lot of people, I think, are even taking on a lot of companies mm -hmm. are trying to, um, you know, there's big graders like PSA and BGS. Typically, you send your cards into them. Um, takes them a few months to turn around currently uh, uh, closer to a year. Um, and, you know, then there's, then there's companies that are coming up that are trying to use AI um, and other pieces of technology to grade these cards. Um, really, really difficult to do. Basically, they're judging corners, surface area, centering of the cards, 
um, and a few other things. Um, and I think that we're we're on a track towards um, eventually being able to replace, uh, you know, human grading and, and authentication with technology, but we're not fully there yet. Um, I think that we're at a point in time where uh, we're, we're kind of using a, a combination of the two. Um, at Starstock, you know, we we have a form of light grading in which we have human graders that are lightly scanning a card to, to check the conditioning and we verify um, that as well. Um, but, you know, that's obviously an advantage to, to digital um, assets and digital cards as well. Um, and so for us, the area that we kind of look for more than authentication is kind of on the, on the trust side um, when it comes to just knowing what type of card you're getting. So one of the one of the issues with eBay um, when you're buying a card that hasn't been previously authenticated or graded is you could look at at the photos on the on the site and you can zoom into the corners and the surface, try to see if there's any scratches or any dings. Often a card could be worth a thousand dollars if it's in perfect condition. There's a small little ding in the corner. It could be worth as as little as ten dollars or fifty dollars or a hundred. Um, so what we do at Starstock is we have a system where every card that comes through gets uh, gets scanned through by our processing team, and they assign it an A, B, or C. And so when you buy an A, you know that it's been pre-verified as like a good-looking card. Um, and in the past, we've sent cards off to our grading companies and gotten about 93 to 95% of our A's have been like nine, uh, nines or tens, and they grade them out of 10. Um, and nice. so that's our way of kind of providing more trust on our marketplace. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think over time we'd like to replace that with technology, but I don't think that the industry is, is fully there yet. I, I find it fascinating just the, the backlog that PSA has. I, I think the last public stat that they released was they had a backlog of a million cards at the beginning of last year. So this is a year, this is like a year ago. And I think it's probably, you know, multiples, you know, up from there, just given the huge boom in, in collectibles. Um, but it's just like they, they can't grade cards fast enough to keep up with demand. It's, 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 it's fascinating. What do you guys think, you know, given that you're you're all running, well, I guess, you know, whatnot in Starstock marketplaces, Benoit, I don't know that you'd really consider Artifact a marketplace, but when you think about sort of managing the the buyer and the seller side of things, do you think that there is, you know, unique modes of management in the collectibles industry? You've talked a lot about how passionate the industry is, for example, but are there special considerations you think for a collectibles marketplace versus other marketplaces? I mean, for, for us, we don't operate the marketplace yet, but our items are on on different marketplaces. Uh, I mean, in crypto, most is happening on, on OpenSea. Um, but it's, yes, I don't know, I don't have that much insights to bring there. Maybe I let someone else reply first. I mean, I, I think the answer is you have to uh, think about it much more differently than other marketplaces. And I think part of what you would realize from this conversation is how much attention there needs to be to detail. I know Scott mentioned he's got his team ABC uh, grading cards because condition is so important and little nuances like that. Um, authenticity as well. And if you're selling things outside of collectibles, a lot of times you just don't have the attention to detail that you need. So I'd say, um, you know, certainly on the buyer side, you, people care incredibly deeply about every detail because you're, you know, you're literally grabbing a card and putting on a 10 point scale for the, the condition and you want to make sure it's real. And there's not a lot of other products that are like that. Um, even comes down to how you ship it. Uh, and, and things of that nature. Um, so I think that, you know, that's one of the key ones in the buyer side is just like the level of detail and how much information you need and how transparent you need to be. On, on the sell side, I think, you know, there's some things that are different. It's just, I think DJ was talking about this earlier, things around like, how do you get the supply? Supply is incredibly hard to get for one of a kind and rare items. And so that's, you know, I think that's a challenge. You have to think around the sell side and supply side. Yeah, I, th I think for us, what we aimed to do when we launched was, you know, we tried to find all the pain points and we looked at looked at it separately for buyers and sellers. Um, and so, you know, for a seller, um, you know, going back to eBay, which Grant said earlier, you know, kind of dominated the market, still still is the leader in the market. Um, you know, the seller's pain points are, you know, higher transaction fees, 
tough to list cards. You know, if you're if you're a big time seller and you're selling hundreds or you know some of them thousands of cards a week, that's hundreds of shipping labels you're printing and, and you're you get to know the guy at the post office on a first name basis. Um, you know, all those pain points um, we tried to address at Starstock, allowing people to ship cards in at, at scale to us and taking the, the processing over for them, lower fees. Um, but the pain points are different on the buyer side. So for buyers, they wanted more trust. Um, you know, on, on a lot of marketplaces, you're able to like return a card, um, you know, after three months or within three months, which is extremely painful at times um, where you're paying high shipping fees, you're paying sales tax. Um, and so for us, we kind of looked at them separately and figured out areas that we can um, improve the buyer experience and the seller experience. Do you guys find that there's, you know, a difference to, I guess, you know, consider me a collectibles newbie, right? Do you think that this is a, you know, a market where there are things happening in other parts of the world that are moving towards the U.S., for example, or do you feel like, you know, different trends are, are very global in this industry? I mean, I think things are both local and global, so it just depends on the trends. So I think, you know, talking about whatnot specifically, uh, the thing that's really resonating with both buyers and sellers is the live shopping experience. It's uh, an incredibly fun and entertaining way to buy and sell and geek out on your collectibles. Uh, this trend specifically, uh, I would say, has probably started in, in Asia and in China, where it's uh, incredibly massive. So last year alone, um, we saw... I think live shopping in China do about $170 billion worth of sales over 100% year over year. And so now what we're starting to see here uh, with things like whatnot is, is live shopping is starting to take hold. But, you know, where it's taking hold is in something like collectibles. And you then this is maybe would be the thing that I'd say, at least to some extent, is, is local. And I'm sure there's other countries outside of the U.S., but it's certainly had a huge resurgence in the U.S., particularly with things like sports cards. Um, and that kind of global trend is mixing with, let's just call it like a somewhat U.S. local trend with, say, NBA cards and things like that that are taking off um, and, and kind of changing the market, changing how customers buy and sellers sell, um, creating a whole bunch of opportunities. You know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, we've got tons of sellers now who are building multi-million dollar businesses off of whatnot. I think there's something about live video that also works really, really well with the collectibles category in particular, because you care so much about how these things look and feel, right? Um, going going back to that sentiment element, and and also for 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 investment purposes, like you want to see the condition of the of the cards and the you know the the toys, et cetera, that you're buying, and so um, being able to have a you know a live video auction where the seller is you know rotating the box, showing you the numbers and you can zoom in on, you know, on the card, et cetera. Um, I think there's, there's something really valuable there. Yeah, it certainly creates like a level of trust. You know, I, I think Scott was harping on like how they're trying to create a lot of trust and transparency. Video is a really live video in particular when you know it's happening right then and there is a great way to do that. And so that is part of what makes it resonate with collectibles. Yeah. I think, I think the other element, um, and I think, uh, uh, and why I think you, you would probably have a great view on this as well is that, um, you know, I think maybe maybe the video started off as utility. Um, but uh, these days, it feels like when I watch card breaking videos online, it's actually become more entertainment. Where, um, you know, even if you're not going to buy anything, you still want to flip over. Yeah. Um, and then just watch cards getting broken because you have that well, moment. Even, like, yeah, yeah even just that, I don't know if you followed when the Lava Labs, uh, best guys in the world, by the way, uh, like when they launched the Mi Bits, uh, so you know it was 2.5 ETH, uh, and at the time ETH was at 3K or something, I don't know, but uh, you know Pranksy, who's like the Banksy of the crypto space, and, you know, and that's the funny thing in the crypto space, just a side note, it's like, it's really alternate reality where us who are a bit the Nike, <laughs> Banksy is Pranksy, there's a guy that does Murakami style, so it's just like alternate world of like different personas, but Pranksy, then he did a Twitch stream, of him buying, he was, I think he spent two millions um, buying uh, Mibits live on Twitch, and everyone was watching from the community, commenting, commenting what he was getting, if it was a good one, then checking the rarity live, 
And so it's it's a lot of entertainment. And you know, and as you know, John, you know, it's been a long time. There's loot box openings on YouTube of Overwatch, like Counter Strike, whatever you want. So it's it's been a while. It's entertaining to see people try their luck, and and try to either complete their collection or get that that item that is missing. That's been waiting on for years. The moment they manage to get it, like you know, everyone is happy for them. A reference what I was saying to the collectors winning earlier, and and when there's like millions involved, it's even more entertaining. It's really entertainment. We are the entertainment of the future, but it's very entertaining. And it's educational at the same time. You know, I think a lot of people who didn't even know what that was, but are following Pranksy, now they get a chance to, you know, understand, okay, this is the rarity. This is why I should like this. This is why I shouldn't like that. And, you know, just as more projects start to come, you know, into into the market, really starting to get a chance to have a better understanding from the community standpoint. So, Chris, what do you think about all the kind of celebrities and uh brands i mean a lot of them are playing in kind of the nft space but do you feel like there's this this rush from hollywood when it comes to new ways to play in the collectible space right now and do you think it's sustainable yeah well i think that everyone it's kind of like if you think about back in the day when um you know the first uh you know, MP3 came out or streaming came out. And when the industries were like, oh, I'm not going to worry about that. That's not a big deal. That's going to pass. And then it ended up eating up the entire industry. And so now, like, they're, they're finally, like, seeing what's happening in the NFT world. And even if they don't necessarily understand, they know that they've seen this this history repeat itself and saying, I'm not going to let this one pass me by. Like, I'm like, so I'm going to get ahead of the curve. Otherwise, I'm going to get eaten up again. So I think a lot of it really now goes into the world of saying, how can I be authentic with what I already am doing? Uh, and whether it's, you know, releasing a new album or whether it's, you know, having specific anniversaries come out or, you know, wanting to drop new content or partnerships, but do it in a way that authentically um, represents them. Uh, but I think that the most important thing where I see the people who are doing it the, the best way are, is when that they're actually before, you know, coming in and, and, and saying, hey, I'm in the NFT world or I'm in the crypto world, I'm in the, the car trading world, is to actually come inside the community and act like, you know, they're a peer. You know, so whether it's like joining a CryptoPunks community or, you know, being a part of, uh, you know, Starstock and, 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 and being a part of the community and unraveling and getting new cards or, you know, really trying to be part of an ecosystem and take off their celebrity hat and be, uh, you know, more students and learners of the mm -hmm. game. I think that that's, that's really the, when, when you start to see the community say, oh, wow, you're one of us, you know? And then from there, when they go out and do their releases, I've seen that's normally tend to be the highest level of success. I I, I love athletes also getting involved with the, with the cards as well. There's something, there's something magical um, when you see an athlete holding the card of themselves and saying, you know, I, I, I love this. <laughs> um, but that, that, that actually leads me to another question that I've been wondering about, and I've been sort of holding my question back in reserve, but I, I feel like this is a great opportunity to, to jump in on that. Um, you know, with, with all of these celebrities and just with all of this pop culture interest in collectibles um, over the last year, I think one of the most common pushbacks that I've gotten, especially from people who don't collect, is just a question of like, is, is this whole thing like a bubble right now? Like, are we... You know, are, are we in a, in, in a in a pricing bubble? You know, that's that's tulip mania or like the dot com bubble where there's just been a frenzy of people, maybe maybe induced by COVID, that are stuck at home with too much disposable sort of time and um, you know they're, they're not spending money on vacations, et cetera, and so they're just going to go and buy you know baseball cards and digital sneakers and and so on. But you know, the minute the minute COVID to the, 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 in, in the post COVID world, as people return back to normalcy, um, prices are going to are going to fall again, and it'll it'll go back to looking like what it was two, three, four years ago. Um, would love to get thoughts from the group and on, on that asset bubble question. Sure, I'll I'll jump in. And feel free, anyone else, jump in as well. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think people who bring it up, there's a credible reason to call it out. You know, the, I think the classic collectible bubble being Beanie Babies and you know the junk wax arrows baseball cards and things like that um to me um 
I, I don't believe we're anywhere near close to a bubble and a bubble popping. I kind of think about it simplistically as, you know, supply and demand uh, mechanics. And it seems hard for me to imagine more demand just not being created over time. To me, I just keep seeing more and more people enter the hobby. And uh, a lot of this, too, is, is there's like this cycle of, of people enter and then they bring in more people. And I think this is particularly true when you start to think about influencers and, and celebrities. You know, we're working with um, a bunch of NFL football players now, you know, selling packs of Pokemon cards and all, all sorts of influencers and things like that. And they have a very big megaphone. And, and what this does is when people like that get in, um, you know, brings even more people in. And I, I personally think this, this looks a lot more like you know, sneakers did in 2015, where, you know, a lot of people thought it was a pretty niche market, but then it became uh, such a um, part of pop culture, and it just created this reinforcing cycle of creating demand. And I think collectibles and trading cards, one of my favorite examples in this is like NBA Top Shots. Like when you look at the number of people who have actually bought NBA Top Shots, it's like incredibly small. So there's just huge, huge room for it to continue to grow and expand. And I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, you know, in terms of pricing, we, you know, we saw prices got really, really high. And I think that it's fair to say that for a lot of cards, um, prices will kind of rebound and settle and find kind of a more reasonable market market price. But I think for the past 15, 20 years, I guess going back to the junk wax era, a lot of collectibles, not, not the whole industry, but a lot of it was neglected and there's very little innovation. And it, it seems like now there's so many exciting companies that are innovating and providing you know, better tools and, and better marketplaces, and better products all the innovation that's happening on the digital side of things and, and NFTs along with, with, you know, physical collectibles really moving forward fast. Um, it, it really feels like we're, we're just getting started. Um, and, and there's still a lot of room to grow. Uh, so, so I, I'd, I'd agree with Grant uh, on a lot of what he said. I'm, I'm very bullish for the future of, of the collectible space. Yeah. I feel go like ahead, that's, Chris. yeah, go ahead, Chris. Oh no! I was just gonna add. I think the I think the the number one most important thing is that like communities are a hundred times easier to build online than offline. So you can, you know, back in the day, you, if you wanted to, you know, go to a car collecting conference, you know, it's a very curated and specific group, and you might not have time, and you might not think that that's even like a cool thing to do, but because of the power of the internet, people who across all around the world. Can now come together, and then you can have you know Discord groups and uh, you know different types of communities, and, and really start to come together at a much deeper level online. And I think that that's that's when people think that it's a, a bubble. I think it's more so them not actually being a part of the community, knowing that the people who actually do really love it, um, you know, are are super super excited. And, and only creating more projects and, and, and uh, opportunities to really bring everybody together. Benoit, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, 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 nothing specific. Is um, I had an idea like before, but I, I forgot it to be honest with you. <laughs> in the meantime, but it's now <laughs> what I wanted to say. No, but it's where it's going. I think what's important in with more people coming in where it's coming. And I'm not the first one saying this, and I won't be the last, but I really think like checking like what's in your wallet, like your wallet, what you collect is going to be part of your uh, lifestyle. And, and you're going to be able to discover people through that, meet people through that, connect with people through their collections. Um, and that as well, like more than ever, because before there was not that many people that were able to create these interesting collectible items or ecosystems. And now, and that's why, you know, Artifact Tech were, I think, like very successful these days and why we really believe a lot in the young generation. There's a huge mountain of creative talent and, you know, visual masterminds coming up and growing up. 
So there's going to be a lot more people potentially creating stuff and inventing ecosystems of collectibles. And, and it's not going to be that much about, okay, because already it's divided today in, in, in communities, even when you deal with uh, sports, you have the football, the NFL, like all of this stuff. But I think it's going to develop in a lot of small, small communities, each interacting between each other and, and maybe potentially different uh, chains. Um, and that's what's very interesting, that it's going to be combined with, uh, you know, easier than ever to collect things and to showcase them, trade them and display them with more, you know, creative brain than uh, talent than ever coming uh, on the planet at the same time, with technology helping both the transaction side and the creation side with creative, creative tools. So I think really the wallet and, and all of this and a lot of people are going to collect stuff. And probably today, it used to be more of a niche thing to be a geek collector. Like me, I used to collect and play magic cards. That's how I started. I was reselling cards uh, in, in Paris when I was uh, 10 years old with my big brother. And I learned, uh, okay, these cards, they are worth money. I can <laughs> keep them and try to collect them and sell them for more and also upgrade my, my deck. But um, it's going to, to, more people are going to be starting to collect without being hardcore, but they're going to love it. And the best thing when you're a collector was always the community you're in. Uh, I mean, to me, that's how I was doing the magic. You know, there was like the people I was playing with, the people I was trading with, the meetups. Now it's, you know, so easy to do that with Clubhouse or, you know, with Internet in general and Discord that it's, gonna, it's lowering the barrier to access to become a collector. And I think anyone, once they start a bit collecting, it's, it's, it's something that's in our human nature to, to be able to collect complete stuff, achieve things, and connect with other people. So it's just going to continue and, and grow exponentially. I feel like that's a great note to end on. Scott, Grant, if you have anything else, but um, you know, it's been kind of fascinating. I'm not a collector myself. I've heard a ton about it from you guys, from John, from Anne. Like, it's just, it's crazy to think about it kind of becoming a, really like a horizontal thing that's just integrated into, you know, gaming and social networks and our entertainment. Um, and it's really exciting what, what everyone here is building. No, and Shannon, sorry to interrupt, because one thing, because I think there's lots of people in the room, so it's really important for everyone who's interested in this to try to buy your first NFT on OpenSea, even if it's a very, very cheap one. Like, just find something that you think is relating to what you like, cats, uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever you want, you'll find something because there's a lot of variety. But it's very important to start to buy your first one, so first you experience how it works. Um, and also you have your wallet and it's your wallet. Then at some point, some people might do offers on it. And that's when you start to really understand like what's going on and why it's so fascinating and why it's booming and why it's here to stay. But it's very important to buy your first NFT, even if it's, it doesn't, everyone talks about the big prices of NFTs, but you have amazing projects uh, that are at a very easy entry price. And, and then you, you'd be part of that community if you buy into that project. So, but it's, you need to do the first step to experience it, to understand what everyone is talking about, like with our weird uh, crypto punk uh, faces on Clubhouse. That's that's great advice. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, I was just gonna. I, I don't have anything else to add. I think it's just been a great conversation. I I enjoyed chatting with everyone. I was gonna do a little plug on whatnot. If you're looking for jobs, uh, we're doing a lot of hiring. So just check out whatnot.com and go to our jobs page. Awesome. I was gonna say. I feel like a lot of builders in the room. So. Um it'll be really interesting to see how uh, how your companies evolve and all the different ways that, you know, the partnerships change and the technology stacks change and uh, industries you guys touch. So thank you guys so much. We appreciate it. Yes. Thanks, uh, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye.